You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the September 23rd, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear how IT modernization efforts are evolving given rapid advancement in emerging technology. On the panel were Courtney Winship, Product Lead, Homeland Security Information Network at DHS, Karen Howard, Head of the Office of Online Services at IRS, and Greg Skip Bailey, Deputy CIO and Assistant Director for Information Technology at Census Bureau. Stay tuned. Everybody, I am Kathleen Walsh. I am an executive director here at GovFuture, and I am so excited to be moderating this panel. We'll get the slide up. So the panel is on uh, modernizing IT, AI, and cyber abuse. So I think that we had a nice theme. Usually in general, we have nice themes with uh, IT modernization here because I think you know, that's what GovFuture is all about. So with that, I will turn it over and I'll have everybody introduce yourself to the audience for about a minute and share one fun fact about yourself. We'll start with Skip. Uh, I'm Skip Bailey, the Deputy CIO for the Census Bureau, and I've uh, been there about five years. Uh, prior to that, I uh, was had a little stand in my own business, worked for Deloitte, and then prior to that, I was the CIO at ATF. and senior executive at FBI. That's kind of been my uh, public service career and was in the private sector prior to that. So I'm, yes, I am very old. <laughs> um, and uh, something, usually the thing I share, I have nine children and 14 grandchildren. Wow. Um, so uh, the the woman that says, it can't, I'm sure you can't believe I have. Paul said that, but, um, uh, that that's pretty much takes all of my time outside of work. <laughs> Good morning again. I, I'm Courtney Winship. Um, I, as mentioned, I spent uh, about 14 years at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services prior to coming to um, DHS headquarters, where I've been about a year and a half. Um, and I, um, my careers kind of span a lot of different things, but at the at the base of it is I'm always an advocate for. Um, improving access for the public and our our general users, um, human-centered design, uh, data-driven decisions, all that kind of stuff is really what what gets me going um, and excited. So I'm hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that today. And my fun fact, I was trying to think of something different, and this is probably really boring. However, <laughs> like it's what I've been doing a lot of nights lately is um, I've been, I really like doing logic puzzles. So I've, uh, I've been sitting around and yeah, as I get tired, that's what I do. Lots of brain exercise there. <laughs> Hello everyone. My name is Karen Howard. I'm the director of the Office of Online Services with IRS. Um, let's see a little bit about me. I have over 35 years in the private sector in a customer user customer experience, user experience, um, from traditional retail all the way up to unified commerce. Um, I joined the agency about three years ago to um, uh, help lead the department of, I mean, the Office of Online Services, and I've enjoyed it ever since. Little fun fact about me, uh, my career started in fashion. 
And I did not ask them what these chairs were going to look like so my shoes could match and my outfit would match. I came in, I was like, wait, whoa. <laughs> and then I um, started in fashion in frontline retail, um, pre-e-commerce. So, you know, pretty much bringing that uh, customer-centric lens, that customer service lens all the way throughout my career. Another fun fact is that I was a, a personal trainer, fitness trainer for seven years, um, during the housing bubble bust when I was laid off by Home Depot and thought I was never going to go back to retail again because it was just such a a, uh, a tremendous, uh, a tumultuous environment to be in. And then I ended up going back anyway. But in my stint between trying to make up my mind, I was a personal fitness trainer for seven years, certified. Very fun. Um, yes, yeah, so we'll start with Karen for the first question. So, you know, I, it's always nice to hear that folks from industry come to government and then you can bring all of those different perspectives with you. And the majority of your career was private sector. So how do you see the U.S. federal government leveraging emerging technologies such as AI and automation to enhance its operation and services for citizens? Right. So there's a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about how we can leverage um, the technology that we've seen emerging in the private sector, in the public sector. The good thing about it is the private sector has already made all the mistakes. Right. So we don't have to. You know, and I say this a lot to my team. You know, guys, we're not recreating the wheel. Um, when you think about uh, efficiency and innovation and, you know, tracking down anomalies and data, um, you know, we're always on the hunt for cyber uh, cyber criminals or, or tax sheets, right? And, and, and the way that we can leverage technology to uh, someone did, I forgot who did the presentation, to really automate repetitive or very arduous task and find anomalies and find, um, you know, kind of make those data-centric decisions around strategy, right? We can really focus on what's most meaningful to um, the business objectives and the end users by leveraging technology. Um, I mean, you can see it all around in healthcare. You know, I was driving in, I'm a big fan of audiobooks because I do a lot of driving and, and you know, they were talking about um, AI in polar implant, I mean, ocular implants. And I'm like, wow, so what does that mean? Are we going to be able to like, be like Superman? <laughs> you know, be able to see through walls? So it's just amazing. I, I think there's there's so much that can be done. And as we use it today to uh, make data-centric decisions, to um, to assist in academia and all of the, all of the you know, public um, uh, divisions, as they look at public service divisions, as they look at their strategic objectives, and then align that with the technology. And I think that's most important. Um, there's so much technology out there. I think there, you know, sometimes people run after the technology without understanding how it's going to um, actually help the business. And um, it's so important that you look at what your strategic objectives are and then find a technology that's, that solves the problem that you're trying to solve, that addresses a use case and, it, and and eliminate technical debt or spending on technology that doesn't meet the need. Um, I hope that kind of, it was a very broad answer because I think we could probably sit here for two years and talk about that. Oh, I even what you said, I'm like, wow, so much to digest. I think learning from others, obviously mm -hmm. something that we are big advocates of, which is why we love when other government agencies share and the private sector as well. Because you're right, why reinvent the wheel? There's so much that's happened. 
We also say don't do don't use a technology because it's a shiny new thing. Yeah. So we um, at uh, Cognolytica we have an AI and ML focused uh, training and certification, mm -hmm. and we always say don't do AI just to do AI. Sometimes trade automation can be a lot better. I mean, you you know our uh, bot brigade had lots lots of efficiencies that trade automation was able to do. Able, you know how much. Time, money was saved just by that. So we always say that's, that's wonderful. And, and really to add to that, also, end user in mind, right? That always has to be, you know, it can't be a, an opinion of one, a pain point of one. Think of the end users, aggregate that information and come up with a solution that's right for yeah. the organization. You also Thank say you. get stakeholders involved. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes you automate tasks that they really enjoyed and now a large majority of their job is things they don't like. And yes. Yeah. Think how fast we'll be at doing that. Probably not so happy even. Uh, so, Courtney, the next question's for you. How, as, I mean, we, we talked about, you know, innovation, sharing, which is wonderful here. So how can federal agencies foster a culture of data-driven innovation and collaboration to accelerate IT modernization initiatives? Yes. So, um, you know, I think it's um, one, of, one of the ways that we're trying to do it right now, and I've found effective in, in, at USCIS and others, is really ensuring that you have um, well, one, embracing the culture from, from you know, top down and everything, but really having interdisciplinary teams. And so that's been something that um, over the last year and a half, I've really worked hard to do is make sure that we're bringing in folks who have, um, you know, whether it's human-centered design, whether they're data folks, whether they're engineers, you know, however, whatever it is that they're bringing that kind of to the, the table and that we're approaching all of our um, projects or products in that way. And I think that that's been really, really effective in, in general. Um, Skip, the next question is for you. So how can federal agencies effectively leverage emerging technologies as we talk about AI, automation, different technologies um, for, you know, their modernization efforts? But maybe also, can you talk about how are you addressing cybersecurity as well and some of those challenges when we're adopting these emerging technologies? Well, I, I think emerging technologies are always interesting. Um, I didn't I did, um, mention my background. I actually got my PhD in user interface design and studied AI, uh, and that was like 150 years ago. <laughs> and, and, it, and if you followed AI, it's an emerging technology that started in the 50s. Yeah. And, and in the 50s, they were saying, next week, we're going to be... <laughs> You know, on top of it, and when I was in graduate school, well, we're right on. We were we were programming in in Prolog and Lisp, and we're doing these uh, finite state automatas that we're building, and you know, visual recognition, and you know, and we thought, oh yeah, next week, and then, but I think we're finally there. And so, if you say, where is it really going to be impactful? I think today is the day, and uh, and especially you know when you see this massive. Uh, proliferation and growth of the of the uh, large language generative models that are uh, that are being produced and and what it can do. There's great promise, and and I think if you um, you know you just sort of have to take a realistic view of things and understand the technologies. Uh, I, I'm going to tell one short story. I hope it's okay. Sure. Um, Starting in graduate school, I got this quote, which I loved, that said, and it was that 
context is worth 80 IQ points. And somehow I attributed to Marvin Minsky, and I don't know if any of you oh, yeah. studied the history of AI. He's one of the sort of founding fathers, MIT. And so I was going around and I I probably gave that 150 times in talks and other things and said Marvin Minsky says. And then years later, I was at a conference and he was now emeritus and he was at the conference. And I was like, well, you know, and we got on an elevator together by ourselves. This was like, wow, you know. And I said, you know, I got to thank you. I, I, I use a quote of yours all the time. He said, oh, really? What was it? I said, uh, the context is worth 80 IQ points. He said, that is a great quote, but I never said that. <laughs> and then uh, it bothered me. I had to go research. And it was actually Alan Kay who said that, who name you probably are familiar with, too. So you have to kind of get it right. And uh, and it was with AI, and especially the new generative models, they're two-edged sword. And in the Census Bureau, we are data. I mean, that's our life. We, that's what we do. We do data. And so AI has created really three problems for us, or three opportunities, on which side do you look at? Number one, uh, we know that these generative models leak data. And we have three types of title data. Title 26, which is IRS data. We have Title 13 data, and we have Title 5 data. We all are all sworn to guard that data. There's serious fines and jail time if we don't. Um, and, and so we're very protective of our data because if we ever had a data problem, we would lose the confidence of the American people and then we'd be dead, would be obsolete. And so data for us is very important. It's number one. And we know that those leak. And so, uh, so we have a problem that and how we're going to use those. But yet there's tremendous promise and value in the kinds of things they can bring. So you, you got to look at both those, uh, both sides of that. The, the value, uh, for example, in uh, if someone's searching our data, and if it's the public side of the data, then a model like that might work. We can also use it on the private, private side, the internal side of data to do analysis and other things, but we got to make sure it's a closed system that doesn't have an opportunity to leave. Uh, then we actually have a unique problem that not necessarily everybody has, and that is we want those generative models to use our authoritative data. Right. Not, you know, we, we did some studies and we did like, what's the population of Owings, Maryland? And, you know, they came back with something and they got it from Joe's tackle shop. <laughs> you know, that's our data. They should get that from us and it should be authoritative. And so we're working very hard to make sure that, you know, it's a little bit like what we've done for years when you do a Google search, you want to be, the first one on the list, and, mm -hmm. and people pay a lot of money to be on the first on the list. Uh, I'm not saying we're paying a lot of money, but we're trying to figure out the way to be the authoritative source because, in a sense, these models don't care. And, you know, that's the other problem with them is you don't know the source of data and how authoritative it is. And so, uh, and then, you know, through that whole thing, the underlying force I mentioned is uh, security. and Probably one of the best things you can do is hire a great ISO or a CISO. I mean, 
we have probably one of the best CISOs in the government right now, uh, and and very aggressively going through and protecting our data and the fact that we have, uh, you know, our our systems we worry about, our data we really worry about, and you know, and we're constantly looking at, you know, we don't add on security. Security's there from day one. That's always in front of us. Um, and so you want to leverage what's available with new technologies like AI and others. Um, I, I'll just say one other thing. We're in a unique time in history because there are six major, uh, major, uh, what do you call them, uh, technologies that are converging at one time. And they've started in the last 20 years. And you know, we've had one. You think think of the World Wide Web. That that was how impactful that was. We have six of those right now. What are they? Well, you have cloud, you have cyber security, you have uh, 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 mobility, big data analytics, um, AI and machine learning, and what am I forgetting? Um, um, what is it? Someone said, well, I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. That's the next, that's probably the next headache. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, come to me. Anyway, but where in the, in the history of the world have we ever had such a convergence? And it's been sort of natural. You know, you think about mobility as, as one, oh, social. We've got social. Can't forget social. I mean, that dominates the world right But you think of how all of those sort of independently kind of made their play, and then they're all coming together. And the last one that's been added to the list is that AI and machine learning, which, again, I think has a similar potential. But for all that to hit at one time, it's just it's an exciting time to be in technology and to be a part of it and, and see what how the world's going to change and will continue to change. So... Uh, you know, in summary, I just, you know, you have to, you have to leverage, these are happening with or without you, <laughs> but you also have to make sure that you're protecting yourself and, you know, not all promises, just because it says it on the internet doesn't mean it's true and, uh, you know, protect yourself and be wide open. Yeah, I think that's important. There was so much that I want to talk about there, but, you know, we talk about data, right? We know that, I mean, there's just a ton of data in the world. Governments are no stranger to the amount of data that you produce on a daily basis. And you need to make sure that you are treating this data with the utmost care, right? Because I think you're held to a very high standard, right? Organizations are as well, but I think governments are held to a higher standard, as they should be. So how are you... It, what did you say? The way we handle yeah. how responsible and ethical we are with the data and we secure it, it is the heart of public trust. And without that, it doesn't matter what new technology rolls in, without that, we all may as well pack up. <laughs> right. We talk about when you lose trust, it is hard to impossible to get back. So if government agencies are losing trust in their citizens, what do you do? Right. That is not a good situation to be in. We don't want to get to that. So... You know, how do you stay up to date with these emerging technologies while you're also effectively mitigating the risks around this technology adoption? You know, we always sometimes the government can be slow to adopt, but it can be cautious 
right? So maybe it's seen as slow, but you do have to be cautious. So how do you balance that with wanting to adopt these emerging technologies, but also needing to have trust in place, security in place? Um, was that a question for me? Uh, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, I, I always, and I run my own personal life like this, right? Fools rush in. Um, when you just rush in, because it's now, that's great with a fashion fad. And we've seen some fashion fads come and go, right? Um, but you can't do that when, when when we're talking about public trust and we're talking about organizations. You know, my background is in user experience, customer service, and the number one thing in customer service, the table stakes, is trust and um, privacy and protecting the data. You can do everything else right, but if you don't do that right, the things that, that we do when we talk about modernizing systems and modernizing government, we have to also modernize our skills, the talent of our people, our leadership. We have to look at the people that are driving this modernization and say, where are we upskilling and reskilling? Do our leaders understand the space and how can we get them there? Or as new leaders come, what are the what are the leaders that we need to bring in who are going to continue to drive that? And then making sure that we, I mean, you made a great point. This stuff is moving so fast. I, I can't believe some of the changes. Make sure that even the leaders are staying on and they're hiring people that are on top of this stuff. Modernization is not just about the technology, but it's also about the processes that we put in place and the people. So um, when we look at we're going to modernize this, but we're still using business processes that are, you know, that we have. And I would advocate everyone, if you've got a business process that you haven't re-looked in three years, re-looked at it, it might need to be re-looked at, right? You can streamline. It's all about efficiency and streamline. And I'm going to tell a little story. So, you know, for as I was coming up in my career, I had all these certifications, product manager, project manager, you know, lean, agile, six sigma, green belt, yellow belt. And so I've let them kind of lapse now because I'm in more of an executive role. But now that we've taken on IRA, I'm revisiting those certifications because I'm like, what has changed in this space? And don't judge me on this, but, you know, I've easily got a speeding ticket <laughs> instead of getting thrown under the jail. I, you know, let me go to school. I don't want points. So I'm thinking I've been driving for, you know, over 50 years. Why, you know, I'm just going to go kind of sit in this class. But the things I learned around the new driving techniques based on the technologies that's in the cars, right? And I'm sitting here like, I'm really learning stuff. I thought I was just going to kind of check the box and go give the, the judge this, hey, I took it, and not learn anything. I'll give you an example. I'm going to ask the question. What's the hand position that you drive in your car now? Is it 10-2? Not anymore. What is it? I think it's like 8-4. And that is because of the way the air, airbags come out and the way the steering the steering columns are put in now. And I'm like, the safety around that, that little change, right? Of course, we all know everybody's driving like this, right? Come on. But, but if you want to do it the right way, you're coming down from that 10 to an 8-4. And I would have never thought, and, and I learned so much more going through that um, eight-hour course. And, you know, I was dreading it. It was first I was like, I'm just going to go through this so I can, you know, get my cert and take this back. But I actually found it interesting. So my point is, just because you think you know and you were an expert, you've been doing it for 50 years. I've been driving for 50 years. And the things I learned, the new roadways, I mean, how many people like roundabouts and what they're doing with roundabouts, right? 
I, I, it's just amazing. So, so my point is, you you got to stay modern. You've got to join these affiliation groups. You've got to research where you can, and just you know tap into um, uh, 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 groups that are focused on where you're interested. Yeah, to chime in on that too, I have children that are in elementary school, and this big thing that they push at the beginning of every year is this idea of having a growth mindset, and that's exactly what this is, right? Be a lifelong learner, and and I take that and I go, yeah, that's really important. And even on our podcast, I've brought that up a few times where people say, you know, really successful people are lifelong learners. I'm like, right, because they have a growth mindset. They don't think that they know everything. Things change. Don't be stuck in your ways. So that's exactly right. One advantage of having nine children is I sat through driver's ed first class now eight times. I've got one more. My wife says made me as the driving teacher. And so I've, I've learned, you know, you pick up those things as you go. And the other one that gets me, I don't know if it's true or in Maryland, you know, I was always taught if you're turning left, you go to the middle of the intersection and you wait. Now in Maryland, no, you got to sit back. And so if it's busy, like you never turn. I, I don't know. How that, I don't know how that works. Because you sit back. I still go to the middle. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, okay. well, I was going to Yeah. So if any comments, well, I was just going to add in addition to everything um, was I think what. We're also working to, to start small and, and incrementally and kind of tackle it, right? So I, I, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, we there's been lots of bright shining talks lately around our office, right? But like trying to figure out what is actually um, what do our users need and what is a, a kind of um, small test we can do? How can we work with our security and other folks to figure out what makes um, what is reasonable? What is what is um, not putting our data or at risk, right? You know, and, and so I think that's that's been a way um, that we've been approaching it too. And I think that's yes, so that's important. a great mindset. We always say think big, start small, right often, and that you know I, I think applies to everything, right? And you can always think big, have that big picture in mind, but then don't take on too much at once. Otherwise, your risk of failure can get quite high and quite expensive. Exactly. <laughs> So I actually have a question about, about talent and about staffing, about people. And I think, um, especially when it comes to new tech, where there isn't necessarily a lot of expertise out there. And I guess what is, maybe you might even have different perspectives on this, because sometimes you're developing your internal skills and, or hiring internally so you can maintain that knowledge inside. Sometimes you're looking to external parties. Some of you are here, technology vendors, consulting solution providers, but they, they all have their balances, right? Because sometimes vendors come, sometimes they go, sometimes they're far to here, sometimes they're gone. Sometimes, so how do you how do you balance the need to, to develop staff and talent technology skills internally so you have that? while also leveraging outside providers who might have those expertise? I'm just, how do you, how do you navigate that balance? Yeah. For us, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, right? Like we are, we are actively working to upskill our, our um, current employees. I think we're also looking to, I'm going to an event next week, uh, you know, for, for recruiting purposes. Um, so that, but, and bring in a, a, as diverse a group of people as you can, whether it's experience, um, you know, geography, whatever it is. And I think for us in particular, one of the things that we've 
um, DHS OCIO, this worked really hard to do, is to build up and now maintain a remote workforce so that we have more access to folks across the country um, than we did prior to COVID in particular, right? And so, but that's, that's, um, so that's one thing that we were doing, I think. And, and, and I think there, we also obviously have, have lots of um, outside vendors that support our work. And I think it's, it is about finding, uh, or, or, um, you know, bringing in or kind of teams that are willing to work together that have certain skills while also the building. Uh, there are certain things that I think are inherently governmental, though, right? And and I think that that, um, you know, investing in that within our team makes sense while then also relying on, um, you know, the skills of outside vendors, especially maybe more in some of the emerging technology things or, or what have you. Um, um, but I think it, it's a mix of things. And I think right now, the last thing I'll say is that we're really particularly pushing hard on, on making sure that we're bringing in um, just new energy, whatever that looks like. Um, yes. We need it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're in that same dilemma. I think, uh, and I've been through several different uh, bosses and sort of feeling some sort of lean heavy toward outsourcing, some lean heavy towards, uh, you know, the bringing people in and having employees do it. And, you know, I've worked in both environments. So I think right now our bias is more towards internal. And we're having a heck of a time in two areas, cloud and security. And it's really being able to afford them. You know, the, the really good people uh, don't work for government salaries. And so you try to leverage things like when we can remote work or Telworth, uh, you try to you try to lean on them about the mission. You know, I've worked about half my career in the private sector, half in the public sector, and what I really came to love in the public sector is the mission. Yeah, you can say whatever you want about the mission of a private sector company, but their mission is to make money. Now they will say something really pretty and you know high, but at the end of the day, they're to make money and. Um, and that's the wonderful thing about it. In the Census Bureau, not only do I know I don't have to worry about making money, um, but what I do affects every person in the whole country, and it's in the Constitution. You know, you don't get much better than that in terms of a mission. And so we try to emphasize those intangibles. And you're not going to get everybody with that, but you're going to get some. And those are the kind of people you want to work for you that have a fire in their eye about the mission that you're trying to accomplish. People might not know, I think the quantity of reports that the census, I, I know it's just because we had a podcast with you, but but you, the, the, the quantity of, and I know Karen's gonna respond to that question soon, but like, but I think people think about the the quarterly census, the, it's for the, but 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 the thing oh, that's right, the, the tenure, but they don't, they don't, I don't think people know about the monthly activity. We, yeah. we do over 130 surveys and censuses. And so if you, you know, things like leading economic indicators, just about any really good data that you uh, see from the government comes from the census. There are some other statistical agencies, but we're the largest by far and uh, do a, a tremendous amount of information from things that are monthly, like a lot of the economic indicators, and things that come on a monthly basis on up to the every 10 year decennial census that everyone thinks of us about, even though that's just one of our, it's the most expensive, but it is just one of the surveys that we do. 
Yeah, so one of the things we've done as far as talent, first of all, I, I think there was a, a recognition of the difference between talent and resources, right? Giving someone a title doesn't make them equipped to do that job. Or maybe they did well in an individual contributor role um, and excelled there, but you really have to evaluate with a strategic eye, can this person lead through um, the mission? Or are they, you know, and where's their passion? The other thing, we we compete also with the private sector and and, and we struggle a lot because of pay. We've, we've initiated uh, remote work for the team and core POD, which is an expansion of our post of duties or where people can work beyond just the DMV area, which has attracted so much more talent that is, you know, dispersed around the nation, right? And it really helps being, a, um, you know, managing IRS.gov because, you know, publishing can happen at different time zones. But I think most importantly is, you know, knowing that distinction between talent when we're looking to put people in roles and um, and where people can excel based on those, not what they delivered, a great project. So now we've got to make them a manager, but based on those core skill, skills, we're also, for 2024, looking to bring in a recruiting specialist instead of just hiring someone that can help target groups where we know we have skill gaps and, and be strategic about how we approach them. So if we're going after, um, you know, uh, emerging kids coming out of college or, or you know, they have a different motivation. They're, they're, they're very career. Um, they have inspiring careers and they're money motivated. That's a different approach than if we're going to go after someone who's really senior in their role and they're looking for stability, they're looking for more family time and creating recruiting um, packages and narrative that really appeal to those groups. And that's a strategic approach to recruiting, which isn't just hiring, putting a position out there and seeing what comes to you, um, really looking at where to go fish and and and, and making a case for if we're fishing at, at colleges or um, early in life, you know, people who are really aspiring in their career, they're going to have a different motivation. And how can we use submission? Because it is a different one. We don't have EBITDA and P&Ls and sales, net sales, you know, it really is about the, you know, mission and a purpose. Um, and I think when you get into other generations or people more senior to manage some of these um, more uh, higher level roles, their motivation is different. And that has to be the message. It can't be a one size fits all. Yeah, these are great insights. All right, we're going to open it up now in case anybody has questions. I know we could go on forever. No questions? All right. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Um, you all have very interesting perspectives. Uh, could you talk more about uh, data standardization and how that's important uh, or how you've been approaching that for within your own organizations? Thank you. You know, an enabler for all this to work. Um, so DHS has yeah, yeah. DHS has been doing a data inventory project for the last several years now. Um, and so I think that, that that's our start in that effort um, coming from USCIS. I think we we have been doing that a little bit even prior. Um, and so there's been a lot of work to stand up um, 
working groups and, and focus on things like data standards in particular. Um, you know, uh, what I, from my own experience, I think that in the immigration realm, we were making we were making pretty a significant progress in that way. I think it's a little slower in other parts of DHS, and because it's a real challenge. Uh, you know, even I've come to learn I have no idea, but what a, what is defining what a law enforcement officer is is like different in different states and different jurisdictions. All these things, so it's fascinating. Um, so I I would say it's a slow and steady progress around DHS, um, with an absolute recognition that it's it's in, incredibly important to what we what we do, and it is part of um some of our priorities. It is looking at overall it is the data inventory program and, and our overall approach to uh, data management and governance um to include those the standards um. Uh, yeah, I wish I had something more brilliant to say, but that's where we're at. Yeah, we we deal with uh, data centerization in, in two ways. One's on the front end, one's on the back end. So our products are data. That's it. That's all we do is produce data. So making products, uh, you know, on, on the back end, we, we want to make them uh, easy for people to get what they want out of the data. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how to organize, how to use search engines, how to produce it that way. On the front end, we have a very interesting problem, and that's this title problem. And I'll give you an example. We have data that we cannot rebuild uh, to the public. So I'll use Title 13. Title 26 is IRS data uh, we cannot rebuild. And so Title 13, on, so the decennial census, we collect data about everybody in the United States. Um, that We can't give people that data for 72 years. Uh, if, you, if you remember, last summer, in 2022, we released the 1950 census data. So in 72 years, we can release the actual data. In between time, we have to use that data. People use that data all the time, but they only can use it in summary form. And there's a problem with that in, in that there's very sophisticated algorithms and people can run them on supercomputers that if you use this summary data, they can work backwards. And they can work back and say, oh, I know where you live and what your household is like and so forth. And we have to, uh, we have to protect data. And so we actually introduce, we actually introduce noise into the data so that the summary data is accurate, but it prevents that working backwards is a very sophisticated algorithm. It's called differential privacy, and it and so you really have to work the data so that you can provide value at the same time protecting uh, the original source of data. So it's kind of a unique situation. Aaron, do you have anything to add? Yeah, real quick. So one of the things as we look um, on the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the recent re released uh, operating model is to give taxpayers more access to their data, right? That's scary. That's really scary. And part of that foundationally is to establish uh, an enterprise data platform. An enterprise data platform that allows us to approach data differently, recognizing uh, taxpayer or user-facing data, and then operational data, looking at data models that support the initiatives that are outlined in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, 
and also standardizing it, leveraging data stewards who understand and own the data definition. Um, and so that's really broadly speaking data governance, right? Um, so as we continue, and that's one of the things that drives the roadmap that my team spoke to, it's what is the data that's required to do that and how have we governed it um, you know, beyond security and privacy, because we all know that's table stakes and that's number one. But when you get beyond that, how do you now standardize it so that it looks the same way? And then from an external perspective, from the taxpayer, from an internal perspective, so that leaders and, and the working teams can make have access to make data-driven decisions, right? So there's a whole governance plan around that that, you know, does involve modeling, does involve um, hygiene, um, just the whole robust governance plan. As you look at mastered data, master data is commonly shared across the organization as opposed to operational data that kind of sits behind and helps do things that most, most users won't use. And so it's really looking at, and I, I think IRS, aside from the census, has one of the biggest, you know, data about everyone. And how do we kind of slice and dice that data based on business objectives? And once you start kind of looking at the jet, the data as like the private sector does, it's a strategic asset, right? It's a moneymaker for the private sector. We'll look at it differently as a taxpayer experience. And, and now how do we standardize it so that it could be leveraged externally and internally? Thank you. Yeah. Does anybody else have questions? All right. Thanks. So as you remember, I'm Denodo and we're on the data management side and we're serving up data to any sort of front ends. Um, my question is on the AI side of the house, what's an example maybe of something really cool that you've been able to accomplish with AI, maybe in a reporting tool or, or whatever, that couldn't have been done three or four or five years ago? Um, if you have um, I, examples. You know, kind of targeting audits, um, you know, has been a manual kind of hunt and peck through the uh, data. And I think through AI, um, and that's we're, we're, we're starting to leverage AI in our customer service, front end and back end, and how we approach audits for taxpayers and businesses, um, how we service uh, uh, the um People calling in with frequently asked uh, questions, right? We don't need to have people on the phone doing that. We can leverage data to, and, and AI to recognize that and present through chatbots or, or whatever other type of technology. So I think, again, when we really look at what are the drivers that make us, that fulfill our mission, um, one of the things that in tax administration, we have to be fair about um, how we administer tax and we can be fairer and react quicker if we leverage data, data modeling, data analytics to really target our um, and defend our approach as well, which, as you guys know, we do a lot of that, too. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, for us, probably it's in the area of analytics. Uh, we, we also have a fairly unique uh, em employee profile. Uh, outside of IT, most, you know, a big majority of our people are PhDs in statistics or economics or so, and they're very hands-on users. So anything that's low code, they're going at it uh, and even 
And even things like R and Python, we have just regular users that are doing it. And I know that, that a lot of machine learning in particular has been used in our analytics side of it, the front end side of it, and uh, producing the results that we have. So, uh, like I said, it's a it's a little bit like herding cats. It, it, it's all, I, at one time I had responsibility for a university, and it's a very similar kind of feel because uh, you know when, when I had university, I had to try to make policy, and the guys in computer science knew more than anybody on my team, and could do more than him and. We're trying to tell them what to do, and they're saying no. You know, and 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 it's a little bit like that. Very sophisticated users, um, and they're constantly doing things, trying things. But I would say it's probably machine learning analytics to speed things up. It's been the biggest impact so far. We're looking at a lot of things right now, making sure we're somewhat cautious because of the downside. But uh, I think the 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 you know large language models will start to be. Uh, implemented in the next little while. Yeah, I think everyone's paying close attention to how agencies will adopt that. So this has been such a wonderful panel. I want to thank all of you for joining. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give you any you know final parting words, comments that you'd like to share with the group. So Courtney, you have the mic. We'll start with you. Um, I would just say be on the lookout for his end in the next year or so. I think all of these, I was a little quiet on the last question because I think we are also just kind of looking at the options that are out there. And, um, yeah, there's there's a lot to come. Our underlying technologies kind of is old. Um, and so it's presenting lots of opportunities. So I think for what, what will come and really um, I'm hoping enhance the uh, information sharing that is done across the last period security and price. So that's it. Thanks. Yeah, I would say, first of all, if you don't have an online account, rush home. Um, <laughs> help us with our adoption success metrics and spread the word. Tax compliance, tax administration, the ability to, uh, for those who really want to comply and haven't been able to because of language barriers, understanding the tax code is going to become so much better in the next three to four years. And, and we're iterating every every month. So um, please stay connected, understand. You'll see improvements every tax year, starting this one that's coming. Um, the IRS is on fire right now. And regardless of how the funding works, it has set us up to continue to iterate to make um, tax administration a more pleasurable experience. Yes. Pleasant as a committee. <laughs> I would just like to make a plug for uh, the Census Bureau in terms of how uh, fair I believe that we play in terms of a highly politicized environment, and yet we, we try to uh, be very truthful. And recently, I was in a, a meeting where we had to make a decision whether we were going to let the administration cease some particular data earlier than the agreement that it has, because this is data that gets released to the public, and we have literally uh, like a three millisecond window when that data gets released because of the impact. And the administrations, have, certain people in the administration can see that data uh, like an hour before it's released. And they uh, and they wanted to expand that. And, and we said, 
We said no to the Trump administration, so we therefore will say no to the Biden administration. It was, it was a proud moment for me from the standpoint of we're going to be fair. It doesn't matter which administration, we're going to play the same. Because in today's world, it kind of maybe didn't matter so much, but it mattered that we were holding the line and not being, uh, you know, held by any any particular party or any uh, any administration. And so uh, recognize that when you see this stuff, it's a very honest effort to give you good data. And we're constantly trying to make sure that what we give you is good data that's representative and it's accurate and that it's protected. Those are the things that we um, that we're focused on. And that is wonderful to hear. So again, thank you all of you for being on the panel. This was such a great discussion today. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.